I want to talk this morning about Jesus' second most famous prayer in the Bible. The most famous one, of course, is what we call the Lord's Prayer, which technically we should call the Disciples' Prayer, because it was the one that he taught his disciples to pray when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. However, even though I am, of course, right on that, I'm not going to try to fight 2,000 years of church tradition over what the Lord's Prayer should be called. But the one that we're going to look at is one that Jesus most definitely did pray himself in John chapter 17. Now the idea of Jesus praying does of course raise the question, if Jesus was God, then doesn't that mean that he was praying to himself? Now you are allowed to ask questions like that. And the short answer to that is that it has to do with the nature of the incarnation. In other words, what it meant for Jesus to become human and to lay down his divine privileges, which we read about in Philippians 2. Jesus laid aside everything to do with being God that would have been incompatible with being fully human as we are. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tell us that Jesus was made like us in every way except for sin. In other words, he experienced life as we do, but without messing up as we do. So becoming fully human meant being in relationship with God the Father the same way that he wants us to through the Holy Spirit, which includes Jesus' prayer life and Jesus' dependency on God. Another reason that we see Jesus praying to the Father is because prayer is about relationship. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but people in families talk to each other. They don't just give each other shopping lists and to-do lists. Or maybe that is what you do in your family. One or two thinking, that's exactly what we do in our family. <laughs> so feel free to come for prayer at the end of the service, if that's you. But you know, prayer is about a relationship. It's not about a transaction. Jesus even said that our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask him. So prayer has to be about way more than just asking for things. It's an intimate day-to-day -day walking with God where we talk and we listen and we share our life with him and we depend on him throughout the day, every day. So when we see the human Jesus praying to his Heavenly Father, that is what he's doing. He's showing us the kind of intimate relationship that God wants to have with us. So John chapter 17. If you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn to that or a Bible app on your phone. And what we're going to read is happening just before Jesus is going to his death and returning to heaven after his resurrection. So his concern here is to pray for his disciples who he's leaving behind. And interestingly, this is the longest prayer of Jesus by far in any of the Gospels. So this is the longest prayer Jesus prays, and it's the last thing that he asks of God the Father for his disciples before he leaves them. All of which suggests that this prayer is pretty important. So as we read it, I want you to be looking out for five things. Number one, that Jesus is praying for us. He's not just praying for his disciples at the time. 
He says he's also praying for us as well. Number two, what he's praying for is that we will be one. He's praying for our oneness and our unity as his people in his church. Number three, the kind of oneness that he wants us to have is the same kind of oneness that Jesus has with his heavenly father. And I think you couldn't get much more one than that, could you? Number four, he's praying for God to protect us. And that's because of Satan, who is on a mission to damage and destroy everything that God loves and cares about. He has no positive agenda. He just wants to mess up and stop the stuff that God wants to see happen in his world. And then number five, look out for the reason why our oneness and unity is so important. Because it has something to do with people finding Jesus. So John 17, starting at verse 1. It's a very long chapter, so we're not going to read all of it. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you gave me, because they are yours. Now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them, so that they may be as one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I am asking you to protect them from the evil one. That's Satan or the devil. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, which is us that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay, so that was Jesus' prayer. So here's the question. Did God answer his prayer? Now given the nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, if there's anyone's prayers that you'd expect to be answered, it would be Jesus, wouldn't you say? So that being the case, the only thing that could stop Jesus' prayer being answered, you would think, would be us, you and me, not cooperating and preventing what God wants to see happening. Not necessarily deliberately, more likely just because we've allowed ourselves to be unwittingly manipulated by the evil one that Jesus talked about. Maybe because we haven't been sensitive enough spiritually to see something going on in the spiritual realm. Maybe we haven't seen it as a spiritual battle that comes as part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. So what I want us to think about this morning is this. How can I personally be part of the answer 
to Jesus' prayer in John 17. And what things do I also need to be on the lookout for to avoid being part of the problem that he was praying about and unwittingly harming the oneness and unity that Jesus was praying for here? How can I personally, spiritually wise up? How can I be more aware about something that before today I may not even have realised was a spiritual issue at all? So let's have a look at another passage at Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And what's interesting here is that he too sees unity in the church as a spiritual issue. He calls it the unity of the spirit. He says, I implore you, which means I beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. And that is, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now Paul describes this as the unity of the Spirit because unity is a quality of God. It's a characteristic of God. It's a part of what God is like, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. So the unity of the Spirit is something that will be present, that he will naturally bring with him wherever he is, if we play our part and we cooperate with him to allow it to happen. And we don't act in ways that will damage it happening. You see, we don't create this unity of the Spirit. We just need to be diligent to preserve it. Reading on, this unity of the Spirit is important because there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over and through all and in all. One, 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 one. 111. Sounds like a phone number, doesn't it? But notice the things that Paul says we need to be diligent about if we're going to see this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And diligent means working really hard at it. All humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance for one another. And these are all things that you and I need to decide that we're going to do, not just pray that God will do them, because God is not going to do them to us or for us. We need to do what we need to do, and in some cases, not do, if Jesus' prayer is going to be able to be answered. Paul says here, I implore you, I'm begging you, please, please, please work really hard at being humble towards each other, being gentle with each other, being patient with each other, and being tolerant of each other. Because that is the only way to preserve this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can feel at home with us in their oneness and unity. Us in them, and them in us, just as Jesus prayed. 
I just want to look at one more passage together and then I want us to think a little bit about what that looks like in practice and some practical implications. How we can be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer or part of the problem that Jesus was concerned about. I want to look at Psalm 133 where we see the blessing of the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit on God's people when they live together in oneness and unity. In other words, when they're doing those things that we just looked at. Psalm 133 is just three verses. Behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head that runs down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And what the psalmist is describing here in this psalm is anointing with oil. And that is olive oil, not engine oil for any (coughs) petrol heads out there. And what it's describing is an anointing ceremony. And throughout the Bible, anointing with oil is a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and of a commissioning for ministry. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. And the reference to Aaron in this psalm is about his anointing ceremony as head priest. And this also reminds us of when Jesus began his ministry in Luke 4. And in his very first sermon, he quotes from Isaiah 61 as his mission statement. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one. And so too does the New Testament Greek word Christ or Christos. So Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's telling us something about him. And in John 14, 12, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So there is a promise and a fantastic blessing that God has for us, a destiny that God has for us as his people living together in unity, anointed by the Holy Spirit. We are called and we are invited to be anointed people because when God's people are living together in unity, there the Lord has commanded blessing. Which also kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How much damage will it do to us as God's people and to us as individuals if we're not living together in this kind of unity? How much might we be in danger of missing out on that blessing and losing that blessing? So that's what I'd like to um, offer a few thoughts on in the last few minutes. What kind of things do we need to be on the lookout for? What kind of things will Satan be trying to enlist us in doing as his unwitting recruits to damage and destroy and undermine this unity and oneness 
that the Holy Spirit wants to see in his church and bring to his church. In uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Or in other translations, we know what his plans are. We know what he is trying to do. But so often Christians don't seem to know what his plans are. They do seem to be ignorant of his schemes and what he's trying to do. And I think that that is primarily because they miss the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on here. Now you've probably heard of something called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. What you may not know is that there is an opposite list as well. What we might call the non-fruit of the Spirit or the unfruit of the Spirit. Bad fruit, in other words. Stuff that has nothing whatsoever to do with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's all stuff that upsets the Holy Spirit and that as Christians we should have nothing to do with because all of this is anti-fruit. And in that very same chapter, Paul contrasts it with the fruit of the Spirit. This bad fruit Paul calls the acts of the flesh. In other words, the way that the flesh naturally behaves when the Holy Spirit is not involved. The acts of the flesh, he says, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If and when we do any of these things, the Holy Spirit is not involved. The Holy Spirit distances himself from us when we're doing them because they pollute us and they're in danger of polluting Jesus' church and driving the Holy Spirit away. Now some of these things that I've highlighted are fairly obvious and most of us hopefully don't do them. Hopefully we are switched on to these kinds of things being wrong. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And you're thinking, yeah, I know all that. But what I want us to focus on is the ones that may be a bit less obvious that maybe we're not quite so switched on to, that maybe we're not quite so sensitive to. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Things that we may unwittingly sometimes get involved in doing without even realising that we're doing it. But Paul is saying these things are on this list because they are just as wrong and just as damaging to the oneness and unity of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit in his church as those more obvious things. And Paul says those who live like this, who do all these kinds of things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I was thinking earlier this week, how is it that Satan achieves his objectives in these kinds of things. How does he generate some of this bad fruit, this anti-fruit, without us realising that that is what's happening? And I think that one of the ways that he does it is to make us think 
that there is no difference between us holding an opinion on something and expressing that opinion on something. Now, one of the things that you learn very quickly if you go into pastoral ministry is to be very careful about correcting someone in the church. Now, I know that you will find this very hard to believe, but charismatic Christians do not like to be corrected. They do not like to be told that they are in the wrong. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply to anyone here today, but you may know other people in other churches who think a bit like that. So if me or Lynn are brave enough to try to correct someone, uh, the reaction can be what we might call very postmodern. Who are you to tell me I'm wrong? Who do you think you are? What business is it of yours? And I like this one. I can't believe you're treating me like this. I'm entitled to my opinions and I'm entitled to give other people the benefit of my opinions as well. <coughs> now, I'm kidding, obviously, but there is some, some truth in that. The, the only reason, however, for us to get involved is if someone is doing harm, either to individuals or to the unity of the Holy Spirit. Then, whether we like it or not, it has to become our business. Otherwise, we're letting people down and we're letting the church down. Because what we think of as just our opinions are things that can so easily cause division and disunity and hurt in Christ's body that Satan can so easily use to manipulate us unless we're handling them really well and really wisely and we're working really hard at that humility and gentleness and patience that Paul was begging us to have in Ephesians 4. Now this is not going to be very scientific, but just for a bit of fun and a little bit of life-like relief at this point, I'd like to ask for a show of hands. Would you raise your hand if sometimes you have opinions about something? Okay, keep it raised if sometimes you have quite strong opinions about something. Okay. Keep it raised if you know that everyone else in the room here has the same opinions as you. Which is, by the way, not the same as saying that they jolly well should have the same opinions <laughs> as you. And then finally, would you raise your hand if you know that your opinions are always right? I'm trying not to look at anyone in particular here. And then, it'll probably be the same people. And then keep it raised if you get your opinions directly from God himself. <laughs> I was right on that one. Okay, well it does look like we're going to need a little bit more time for prayer ministry at the end of the service. Hands down. So let me suggest some opinions that... I think Satan is all too easily able to use to cause his dissent and discord and factions among God's people at this time right now. And none of them will surprise you. Brexit, leave or remain. Politics, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn. Donald Trump, <laughs> same-sex marriage. And then... Watch out for Satan's blindside move 
off the base of the scrum. That's a rugby analogy, by the way. Always like to get one in if possible. This is Satan's blindside move. Gets us all the time. The Bible says. Christians are so susceptible to that. Even though it was exactly how Satan tried to manipulate Jesus in the wilderness. Three times by quoting what the Bible says. And the reason that that works so well, the reason we go for that sometimes when we're trying to express our opinions, is because what, what we're really saying is, this isn't just my opinion, it's God's opinion as well. Game, set, and match. But you know, the reality is that the, the question is never just what does the Bible say in that sense, it's what does the Bible mean? And what does it mean in the context of everything else it has to say? Not just these verses that we've plucked from here and there. So if we still feel that we are always entitled to express our opinions, especially because it's obvious to us that we are right in those opinions, then we'd better be really sure that we are right. Because if we don't care how much damage is done to relationships within the body of Christ because of our opinions, then we have a problem. As someone once said, and I think wisely said, there's no point being right if it means losing all our friends. So time is nearly up. I just want to finish with a few words about the cost that will be involved in Jesus' prayer in John 17 being answered. Because the blessing we read about in Psalm 133 goes hand in hand with that cost. Nothing of value ever comes without cost. And the question is whether in the world that we live in, where I'm entitled to my opinion, whether I'm willing to pay a price, whether I'm willing to lay down some of my opinions and my right to express those opinions for the sake of the blessing and the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit within Christ's body. Our calling as God's people is to be radically different to the world around us, not shaped and formed and taking our points of reference from the world and the way that the world naturally thinks. And what that will mean is voluntarily laying down some of the rights that the world around us takes for granted. In Romans 12.2, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The NLT says, don't copy the behaviour of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And it's described as a command. Let God transform you. You see, we need to remember that Jesus had lots of rights and entitlements as well. But wherever they conflicted with his mission, he laid those down for us. And I think he's calling us to lay down some of our rights and entitlements for him. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself. And what that means is that he laid aside all of the rights and entitlements that come with being God that would have been incompatible with his mission here for God. He became a servant, serving others' interests. 
instead of just serving himself and serving his own interests. So for us, giving up rights is part of being like Jesus. Paying a price is part of being like Jesus. Taking up our cross daily is part of being like Jesus. If Jesus can give up his rights for us, we too surely should be willing to give up some of our rights for him. And especially those of us who are leaders or who aspire to be leaders. Because Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. Whenever we start thinking in terms of our rights and our entitlements, we put ourselves in danger of being just like this world that we're living in. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul could have been speaking directly to us in our postmodern world when he said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And you know, social media is a great example of this because whatever mistakes that we might make in a one-on-one conversation with someone are magnified out of all proportion when a thousand people see what we've posted. A thousand people who know that we are Christians and that we're part of the vineyard. So if Jesus' prayer in John 17 is going to be answered, we have a choice. Are we going to commit ourselves to being part of the answer or allow ourselves sometimes to be part of the problem? David, can I ask you to join me? Thanks. Do we want to be the kind of church where, as it says in Psalm 133, God has commanded blessing. A church where we see this anointing and empowering and presence of the Holy Spirit. Are we individually willing to pay a cost in order to see that happen? To give up our right to express some of our opinions in the way that the world has that right, especially when we feel that we're right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, being right is not the objective of anything that we do. Introducing people to Jesus is the objective of what we do. Winning hearts and minds to him is what we do. So we shouldn't allow anything else to get in the way of us doing that. 1 Timothy 1.5 says that the goal of what we do is love from a pure heart. We lay down our lives, we lay down our rights for the sake of a higher calling and a higher purpose. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, you have been called to live in freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love.